Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. Today I wanted to talk about the criminalization of poverty, but part two. So in one of my first podcast podcasts, I discussed what I called the criminalization of poverty as it related to the pandemic, and I wanted to revisit some of those themes. So I've noticed in the last few weeks that I've seen more ads on YouTube for how people can qualify, so to speak, for PPP loans as if they had a business. I don't know if some of you have seen it. It's sort of like, hey, did you know that you could qualify for a loan? And, you know, it's been pretty disturbing. It's something I've noticed as a trend. So I I noticed it before. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are in desperate situations. And the average American is dealing with a lot pre-pandemic, but it's been multiplied during the pandemic because of the lack of meaningful federal and even a lot of state responses to the crisis. So people received no canceled rent, no steady stimulus package, and many did not receive meaningful unemployment packages from their state. We see a lot of businesses that were staffed by some of the lowest wage employees unable to currently keep staff now that they're opening more, blaming the idea, well, blaming the people on this idea that they, quote unquote, don't want to work, they'd rather receive unemployment. The American spirit historically has always been to work and earn a wage. So I saw Mitch McConnell on television during a press conference after his meeting with President Biden, and he claimed that people needed to get back to work. So I wanted to unpack that. The same rhetoric has already been used against newly freed African-American slaves in the Reconstruction area and the looming fear during that time. So this was 1865 to 1877 and even afterwards, the looming fear that black people not working which really meant making money for the rich plantation elite, would cause the degradation of society. So the Klan, the police force that we know it as, as well as the prison industrial complex, were created to regulate black bodies, black labor, and to serve as you know punishment for not working, really. That's essentially exactly what the state laws say, and you can look that up on your own. I've talked about black codes before. The same rhetoric was also used against Mexican-Americans after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. You know, the border was redrawn, and everybody who lived north of that line became an American citizen. So the idea that those people's labor needed to be regulated as well, as they were also considered colored people, and therefore subject to the eugenics rules and segregation of the era. Not even to, because it's also worth noting that, you know, being descendants of indigenous people, a lot of that anti-Native American sentiment was also rested on these um, Mexican-American populations as well in the Southwest. The same rhetoric was also used against Asians in America and their American offspring for the purpose of keeping them in low-wage labor to maintain the racial hierarchy. So the question is, who needs to get back to work? Who do they mean needs to go back to work? They can't use the same blatant racist rhetoric as before, like they would have even 80, 60, you know, 50 years ago, right? They mean anybody who works in a service industry capacity. And many jobs that are seeing staffing issues are considered um, service industry jobs. So the people who, again, get paid the least in society, and we're talking about hourly wage work. 
it's a problem when the state has to provide them with the bare minimum it takes to live in their local area, you know, through unemployment assistance, but the private companies don't have to pay them enough to meet that same, you know, living standard. And I've already talked before about the MIT living wage calculator. So that's another plug to check that out. In addition to lower wages, these people have to deal with, you know, customers, which, you know, can be hard if you're working in service capacity. I worked retail service before when I was, you know, early in college, 18, 19, 20 years old, about 18, 19 years old. Um, Oftentimes these people have to deal with, you know, terrible customers anyway. And on top of it, because we're in a pandemic, you have people who are refusing to follow mask mandates, are refusing to maintain social distancing, and it's just amplifying the interactions that they're having with these negative customers. And a lot of these workers are not valued in their capacity because they truly are seen as servants, right? When you look at service industry, historically speaking, these jobs were commonly reserved for members of the aforementioned cultural and racial backgrounds. Because we know in our society throughout history that certain jobs were reserved for people based on their race, based on their gender, things like that. And it seems here as if supply and demand isn't funny to the rich when it works against them. They have more demand for employees than they have a supply for. Hence the employment sign-up bonuses that you may have seen, um, people taking pictures of, offers of on-shift meal price reductions, etc. These are things that should have been in place, (laughs) but are only there because they really cannot find people who want to deal with the jobs, all that goes, you know, all that goes with working there and also not being able to make enough money to take care of themselves. So let's get back to PPP. I heard a great podcast by a YouTuber and she has podcasts named Lovely T and she was talking about people that are having their family members rounded up now that the government is catching up to those people who were approved for PPP loans, but they didn't have any reason to get them. I already said earlier that I think that it was a setup to fuel the prison industrial complex. Many people were preyed upon and gave their information, and I mean like social security numbers, other you know pertinent security information, to people who are now long gone. And now these people may be facing fines, jail time, etc. for receiving that money. And they may not be able to find the person who filled out those contracts for them. Because a lot of people gave their information to somebody, signed it, that person received their money, like their cut, and they were out. So a lot of people spent that money on luxury items, travel, etc. And all of these receipts can be audited. There's a paper trail for all of it. So I remember last year, someone who was on the show Love and Hip Hop Atlanta got discovered for being a part of the scam. So even though he had a legitimate trucking business, he was buying cars and jewelry with the money, which is not what it was intended for. I saw a video from a YouTuber named MC Shaky, where he was calling out either Supercent or BB Judy um, for doing the same thing. So guaranteed, if they did, the government will come to collect them and get that money back. And the thing about MC Shaky's video was he actually was showing... Um, like receipts, like proof that they had taken money and had spent it on things that they weren't supposed to and that they had overinflated the um, amount of money that their businesses brought in. So it was, you know, pretty 
scary and also really intriguing. You know, people who already have access to wealth were also being a part of these scams. So for people with less access to capital, that's especially scary because many of them didn't use the money on frivolous items, but rather they used it to buy things like food, pay their rent, etc. so that they would, especially paying their rent so that they wouldn't be evicted after the rent moratorium was lifted. Like I said, the government never, the government, the state, the cities that I'm aware of never canceled any of those payments, nor took on the burden of paying them to the um, owners of the property. So for a time, the states and counties didn't evict people for non-payment, but those things are going to be lifted soon. And it still affects your credit and rental history if you never paid, even if you, even if it's because you couldn't pay. And it also still follows you even if you left the property before they were able to get that money back from you. Yet even if people did get the money and use it indeed to survive, Lots of people who still received unemployment, well, excuse me, lots of people who received the PPP loans still received unemployment from the state as well as the additional federal money that was given on top of that. So as a teacher, I've been on unemployment in the summer months. Many teachers are on unemployment in the summer months. It's very common. Um, And I did this earlier in my career. So in California, because I can only speak to California State, every two weeks you have to certify, which means that you say what work you looked for and also list any wages that you received for the past two weeks. So within a few days of you reporting it, because they like, you know, every two weeks you have a reporting date for the two weeks prior. Within a few days, they calculate what aid you get or a prorated amount, and then you get the money sent to your EDD debit card. I don't know if some of you saw that there was a big EDD debit card scam in Beverly Hills, um, which is just the Office of Unemployment. Um, You have to claim any money that you received, especially where there's a paper trail, right? Because if someone like, you know, someone in your family gives you cash to help you get by in the summer, you know, that's not traceable, right? But if you work at all for any normal employer, you have to report that. Um, As someone who has done it wrong before and lost out on summer money I should have gotten, as well as me speaking to agents over the phone about the issues and, um, you know, with my certification and where I did it wrong and them explaining to me what I have to say because I'm a teacher and because it's just for the summer. Like, there's a lot of these loopholes. And it's frustrating because there's a lot of things wrong with the unemployment system in itself. And that was before it was overrun with COVID-related layoffs and, you know, not having enough agents to process paperwork in time to get people the money that they needed. So there's going to be an influx of people being pursued by the government for these crimes, even though for many it was a failure of the government. Like I said, you have to report any money that you get. And a lot of these people received PPP loan money and did not certify on their unemployment that they received that cash. So I hope that makes sense. They're supposed to claim it because essentially they would be ineligible for unemployment for that month or for those two weeks, right? However you certify in your state. Um, But because they didn't report it, they double dipped, if you will. So... There were a lot of people who were misinforming, scamming, and taking advantage of a lot of working class people who were in vulnerable positions. Of course, there are people who claim to make six figures on a business that they did not really own. They received tens of thousands of dollars and sometimes, you know, 
like multiple um, in PPP money. Some people got, you know, like, you know, two to 5,000. A lot of people got a lot of money. And again, all of that is tied to your social security number and is trackable and traceable. So for people who gave their, you know, social security information, et cetera, to somebody who couldn't be trusted, whether that be seedy cousins or family members, because we all have them in our families, they might be caught in the shaft of legal woes now that the government is trying to figure out, well, who got this money, who didn't need it? And now they're looking at the auditing books for unemployment and saying, well, who received, you know, loan money and did not put that on their unemployment paperwork. So they got, you know, more money than they should have. The criminalizing of these people who did so out of desperation will probably not be considered. So I saw that Gavin Newsom was lifting the mask mandate, I believe on June 15th. And I'm unsure of how that will affect private businesses that still want to enforce them or citizens who are afraid to mingle in public spaces because of the laxing of social distancing requirements, especially while India and other places around the world are dealing with current spikes and healthcare crises as a result of those COVID spikes. I think one area that you know the pandemic has highlighted is it's shown that a lot of people that are celebrity stars, and I say celebrity because they're not real celebrity, they're not real celebrities. I guess in my mind, they're famous for being on television, on reality TV shows. So that's where celebrity comes from. Um, a lot of them claim to live these elite lives. And really, they're closer to the rest of us than we thought when it comes to like their money and how much they're making and the lifestyles that people assume they're making because of social media, but that they're really not living in real life. So I think COVID has sort of broken the fourth wall in its own way. I read that the Love and Hip Hop franchise is listed or is classified on television as an infomercial. So the personalities that are on the show, the people who are the cast members, are only paid $1,500 per episode because it's, like I said, it's classified as an infomercial. So something else that's interesting is obviously the pandemic has been very hard on everybody. People haven't been able to film. It has affected scheduling and reunions and, you know, just normal filming for the shows, et cetera. But something I had read before was comparing how people who were on major networks like Bravo, like let's say the housewives castmates, they weren't really hurting for the same money that, you know, people who are on shows that are reality TV on other networks are like VH1, right? Where the shows are listed as infomercials and they're really not receiving as much money, hardly anything, $1,500 an episode to get beaten up and drinks they're not, it just seems ridiculous to me. But um, many of the people who are on those celeb reality shows are the people who've been called out for abusing these PPP loans and even getting into legal trouble as a result. You know, however, I'm far less concerned about them. I'm just, you know, telling you for purposes of example. I'm concerned about the average person, the average people, normal working class citizens who were in desperate situations and did so to truly take care of their family, not to showboat and to flex for social media, claiming that they were living this elite lifestyle. Like I said, I am interested to see if the government, and I doubt that it will, because you think about who are these people who are, you know, tapping into it or, you know, what demographics do they fit? I'm hoping that the government will take that into consideration while pursuing these people legally, right? 
considering that they were some of them were scammed considering that many people took the money because again there was no rent cancellation there was no um they couldn't like shut off your utilities for non-payment but like i said it still adds up you still have to pay it and now that the states and the federal government are trying to just get everybody quote unquote back to work and back to normal those restrictions are going to be lifted so people are going to have to pay their back rent or else they're going to have to be evicted. They're going to have to pay their back utilities or else they're going to have it shut off. Like these are going to affect a lot of people as things start to open up, especially this summer. So I just wanted to cover that because I thought it was important to sort of give an update to it and discuss again how I think in my mind a lot of these people, especially, and it rose my red flags because I was thinking, okay, well, how are people on YouTube? And they look just like normal people, like me or you listening to this, that are just sitting in their living rooms and are filming a video saying, did you know you can qualify for a PPP loan? And I was like, what the heck is this? <laughs> like, why are they advertising this on YouTube? Like, who is a... My question would be, because you know, here we go, but... If they know that there's a high rate of people scamming, why would they advertise it on YouTube, right? Why doesn't YouTube or any of the internet's key holders stop people from being able to make those videos to lure people into getting the loans in the first place, which is why I said I think it was all part of this larger conspiracy that just fueled the prison industrial complex, right? You don't see... I don't know, like, I'm not going to pick any particular industry, but I just think it's really interesting and problematic that you had advertising for, you know, signing up for these loans that are turning out, you know, to be scams and people are going to go to federal prison and do real time for this and have fines. Even if they don't have to do jail time, they may have probation. They may have fines that are attached to them and all those things affect their possibility to live, but it still fuels the prison industrial complex because it puts them, um, they have caseworkers now, they might have parole officers, all those things that just fuels that complex. Again, I think I mentioned this in the last one, but maybe not now that they can't criminalize the same things that they did before. I want to talk later about some of those shifts, how we see how on the one hand you think, okay, well, certain things are being decriminalized like marijuana, but people don't talk about things that are that are being criminalized to replace those things. So there's a lot going on, but I'm going to end this podcast for now, and I hope you all have a great rest of your day or night. See you in the next one. Bye.